You're listening to Messy Jesus Business, a podcast about radical gospel living. Hi, everyone. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, a writer, spiritual director, and jail minister living in Chicago. Welcome to The Mess. At Messy Jesus Business, we explore how the mess of radical gospel living brings disciples into a life of struggle as we advocate for social justice, live simply, serve others, practice contemplation, and live in community. And now on to our guests, Brother Paul Quinnen and Judith Valente are co-authors of the books, How to Be, A Monk and a Journalist Reflect on Living and Dying, Purpose and Prayer, Forgiveness and Friendship, and The Art of Pausing, Meditations for the Overworked and Overwhelmed. Brother Paul entered the Trappist Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky in 1958 at the age of 17, where Thomas Merton was his novice master and spiritual director. He sleeps under the stars each night and is an avid hiker and hill climber. Brother Paul is the author of the award-winning book In Praise of the Useless Life, a monk's memoir, as well as nine collections of poetry. He is also a sought-after and inspiring speaker. Judith Valente is a two-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Journalism and is the recipient of many awards for her coverage of faith and culture for national PBS TV's Religion and Ethics Newsweekly. A former staff writer for both The Wall Street Journal and The Washington Post, she has been a contributing correspondent for Chicago Public Radio, and her articles appear in U.S. Catholic and National Catholic Reporter. Judith is the author of four previous spirituality titles. She is a lay associate of the Benedictine Monastery, Mount St. Scholastica, and she speaks and leads retreats on living a more contemplative life and discovering inner wisdom. In this episode of Messy Jesus Business Podcast, we talk with Brother Paul and Judith about their motives for writing their most recent book. We talk about callings, how it's possible to have several, and how each of them came to know their respective callings. We discuss what it means to be, and that our human dignity is not tied to productivity. And we explore the mess of living in community and being true to oneself. Enjoy. Welcome, Judith and Brother Paul to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm an admirer of yours, a longtime admirer, Sister Julia. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's great to be together. So at Messy Jesus Business, I like to ask my guests really about their vocation story and how they came to know who they are uh, uh, authentically, who they truly are, and who God's calling them to be and how God's calling them to serve and be in the world. So Brother Paul, I'd like to start with you. Could you please tell me 
how has your sense of who you are and who God is calling you to be shifted over the years? Well, I would say that uh, my first 10 years was dedicated to the inward search. And uh, of course, I always thought that uh, I wasn't quite good enough for the, the monastery, the monastic life. And then I spent the next 10 years thinking the monastery was not good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was uh, at that point, I, uh, I went to Africa to help out at a monastery there to just get a, a sense of uh, monastic life that is not at the standard of Af middle class American affluence. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I've, since then, I've reconciled reconciled myself to it. The inward search was mm -hmm. the main thing. And then uh, after that, it was how I have re acquired so much. How can I give it back? I've received so much from the community. How can I return it to the community or to, you know, the world, whoever? Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the way, you found that writing and speaking was one of your things. Yes, I, I didn't start writing really until, well, except for classwork, and that was pretty minimal, mm -hmm. you know, taking philosophy and theology and things like that. But uh, it wasn't until I was about 42 when I published my first book of poetry. Just for context, because the listeners, listeners might be curious, how old are you now? 81 years old. 81. That's great. Congratulations. Which country in Africa were you in? I was in Nigeria. Mm -hmm. I was helping out at a, a young monastery that was had been in existence about five years at that point. And I was there almost two years. So it was a really transformative experience for you then? Well, it was maturing mm. because I had to be responsible for those who were in formation to some extent and mm. give spiritual direction and live in a different culture. Yeah. The intercultural encounters are usually transformative for us, which kind of brings me to Judith. I know a little bit about you and your work, but I'd love to hear you share an answer to the same question. How did you discover how you were meant to be in the world and, and how God was calling you to share your gifts? Well, I always felt I had a calling as, as a writer. People would ask me when I was four or five years old, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would say, I want to be a writer. Mm -hmm. You know, where did that come from? That, you know, it came from somewhere inside of me. And my first love in writing was poetry. You know, I thought I'd be a poet. And then I quickly realized that poets earn in the high two figures uh, in terms of salary. <laughs> right. and they're so, lucky if they earn $20. <laughs> yeah, they're lucky if they're, they earn $20 a poem. And then um, in high school, I got onto the high school newspaper, and in college, I was the editor, the first female editor of the college newspaper, and I saw journalism as my calling at that point in my life. I, you know, I really saw, um, you know, I really understood journalism as a vocation. We used to say, when I worked at the Wall Street Journal, there was a saying that our role was to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Mm. And that's how I looked at journalism. You know, but over the years, I felt like I had done everything that I could do in journalism. I had done, it's, it seemed like I was doing the same stories over and over again. And around that time, I had my first experience of monastic life. I went to give a talk at a monastery about poetry. And I remember walking into that place and just being astounded by the quietude 
and the peacefulness of the monastery. This was Mount St. Scholastica Monastery in Atchison, Kansas. I was there because I was giving a talk on both journalism and poetry at their college, Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. And I remember thinking, you know, the warmth of the sisters, the hospitality, that this is, this is what I had been looking for. And then I just uh, kept going back and back to the monastery, eventually made my way to uh, Brother Paul's monastery, the Abbey of Gethsemane, and became a Benedictine oblate, a lay associate of that particular monastery in Atchison. And I began writing books as well. So, so you have the, the, the poet going to journalism, the journalist going to book writing. And I realized that with my journalism, I was always trying to change minds. Mm. But by writing books and writing in the spirituality genre, I was trying to change hearts. And that became a new vocation for me that led to guiding retreats for busy professionals, writing books to help busy professionals live a more contemplative life. So that is how I guess I could say my callings. You know, Brother Paul often mentions that we don't we don't always have one calling in life. We have more than one calling depending on the will of God. And I, I feel like I've had more than one calling. Mm. And along the way, in both of your journeys, you must continue to make discoveries about who God is and who you are. So what are some of the most significant things you have discovered that that others might be captivated by too? Well, uh, my God is a very hidden God, and it's been that way for a long time. Fortunately, I was well formed in advance to expect that, mainly because Thomas Merton was my novice master. And he had that very sense of the via negativa, you know, the apophatic way uh, that God is beyond our experience. If you take experience in the normal sense of the word, God is beyond that, uh, leave alone beyond our comprehension. I find that's more and more true. It's hard to measure these things, but I think that perhaps the, the, the thing that has changed a bit is that simply by abiding in that kind of poverty and emptiness actually has made my life more fruitful hmm. in the sense that if I have anything to write about, it's that, and, and it should be that, because oh. that's really what my, my life is about. Uh, being a writer and having a public image is really a distraction. The real me is the one that just has to sit and wait for the Lord. And most of the time after after Mass, my Thanksgiving is just a matter of, well, just being uh, and being in the present moment as far as I can. And that is the thing that I have to give to the world, really. If I'm, if I'm writing about anything, it's, it should be about that. Now, my love of nature has been, you know, pretty, pretty broad, and uh, I still have that. I, I like to meditate outdoors after mass, standing in the middle of a field, looking east. Mm -hmm. I'm hearing a lot about surrender. I guess you could, you could put it that way, yes. And your phrase of just being connects to the title of the book that the two of you wrote together, how to be <laughs> the subtitle, a monk and a journalist reflect 
on living and dying, purpose and prayer, forgiveness and friendship. So I wonder if, if each of you could tell me what it means to simply be. I'll answer that because Brother Paul has helped me a lot with that. A lot of my life, I felt like I had to earn my place in the world. It was my, it was what I could, my contributions and what I could give to the world that, that mattered or that made me matter. And, you know, Brother Paul was somebody who said, no, who came around and said, no, that's not it. The purpose of life is to live your life, to just be. You wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be alive if you didn't have a purpose in life, if God didn't want you here. And that was a very freeing uh, revelation for me that he helped me over the years. See, I think um, it's something he said to me maybe on, on our first encounter. You know, I first encountered him as a journalist interviewing him. For a, for a piece on Thomas Merton for PBS TV. And um, he mentioned that uh, the purpose of life is life, it's just to be. And that really struck with me because I was still in my hard charging journalism phase of life. So that's, I think, a very freeing attitude to have that, you know, it's, it's okay, you know, it's okay if I'm not perfect. It's okay if I don't do everything exactly right. It's okay if I don't win a Pulitzer. It's okay if my if my book doesn't become a, a million sales bestseller. Um, <laughs> right. It's, it's okay. Yeah. Yeah. This sounds like real. Um, you're saying it, you don't have to be perfect. I mean, welcome to messy Jesus business, right? <laughs> you're living the gospel. And, and, and that's what this podcast is all about is as we each say yes to Jesus, what we're really saying yes to is a life of acceptance of, of the fact that like, we can't control this. <laughs> we, mm. we are just here um, submitting to the mystery and, and accepting where sometimes we're going to be a mess. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> and in fact, sometimes what we're getting ourselves into are messes, right? And and the work of creativity of writing and making poetry and even just being can feel very messy. One of the things that I, I, I would like to just sort of illumine here that feels significant, Judith, is you naming how you as a as journalist, as a career woman, really kind of fell for this idea that the world ingrains in us somehow that our self-worth is connected to our productivities and our accomplishment and our achievements. And it's not because we are simply a child of God. Our dignity and worth comes from being God's creations. And to just savor and to sit in that goodness is, is a very sacred experience. But it it means resisting the lies of capitalism, right? Oh, <laughs> that are constantly well, telling yeah. us to, to, to create, to build, to spend our, spend money, make money, <laughs> and all these things. Yeah, it's really the great myth of, of corporate America and the great myth of American success, what we mm. view as success. You know, I've been living for three months now in Italy doing some research. And, you know, what is success for Italians? It's having, you know, having a meal, sitting down to a meal with your family and your friends. You know, that's what they consider real success. Having a, a lovely, making of your surroundings a lovely place. Presenting yourself to the world in the best way that you possibly can. I'm ta not talking about Armani suits, but I'm talking about just having pride in how you look and wanting to, wanting to present a good uh, presence to the world. So their conception of, 
you know, what really matters is very different. When I was working for the Wall Street Journal, I worked there for eight years. The mantra we would constantly hear from the headquarters in New York was more, more, better, better. Mm. And that just wasn't the Wall Street Journal. I mean, that's from the factory floor, floor in uh, Detroit to the offices of, of these big financial companies on Wall Street. You know, more, more, better, better. You got to work all the time. You know, you got to be mm. plugged in all the time. You got to work seven days a week. And, you know, and Brother Paul would, you know, something he he said to me one time is, no, that's not it. You know, that's not success. Mm. So what is, bro Brother Paul, what is success? I think success is to be authentic, to live according to your true self. Uh, which, as you say, is to be a child of God. I, I want to scrap the whole language of success. I, I think success is it's applicable in some in sports, maybe, and in some right. endeavors. But I don't know if being a success is an ambition that, that I would. If some, you know, uh, Monica Furlong, for, she had a good book about Thomas Merton. But the conclusion of her book was that his life was a success. Well, I think Merton would have scoffed at that. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't trying to be a success. It just so happened. He, he was interested in being a writer. But, you know, for him, success was not primary. Mm -hmm. And he could have done without it. And sometimes he regretted that he was so much of a success. Mm-hmm. You know, some of what you're saying, it connects to my personal fascination with holiness and what is holiness and how we as Christians, especially as Catholics, so much of our tradition is teaching us to pursue holiness or strive for holiness. And it's in a way, like as if it's a play, a moment of arrival, <laughs> right? Like, Ta-da! You achieved it. <laughs> we can fall into the same like mentality, the same sort of trap. So I wonder what holiness is and that how that connects to this call to be. Yeah, well, you know, Merton said, as soon as you think you've arrived, you've lost. <laughs> it's a continually ongoing process. And there, there is no arrival point. It just goes on. And according to St. Gregory of Nyssa, in eternity, it goes on even more. So I, I think uh, holiness is a vital aspiration. I never thought of myself try, of trying to be a saint. I prefer just to think of being holy in the sense that you you live in the holiness of God and, and hopefully absorb some of that. I think we mistake um, sometimes piety for holiness and following the rules for holiness. And, you know, I kind of like what the Benedictines say, the spiritual path is this, I rise and I fall, I rise and I fall, I get up again. And, you know, I think that's, that was the message of Christ, you know, all, all throughout the gospels, you know, he was with sinners, he was with people who were on the margins of society, because he knew that we rise and we fall. And, you know, sometimes people, young people, especially when I have an opportunity to, to talk with them, say, well, how can you be a Catholic? How can you be a Christian? How can you believe in the Catholic Church? And I say, well, I don't really believe in the church. I believe in the message of Christ. 
Mm. (laughs) And there's a difference. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about that in a moment because there's a lot of juicy stuff in your book about Catholicism. (laughs) But before we do, I would like to just go back a little bit to this Thomas Merton and holiness and and things you both have learned from him and, and from the Benedictine tradition over the decades of your involvement. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is it Thomas Merton who says that to be a saint means to be myself? Well, he says that in so many places uh, that uh, to seek, to find the true self. Yeah. And um, because that's the, that's the person that you are in God. Yeah. And in some sense, only God knows that self. Uh, I remain as much of a mystery to myself as as God is a mystery to myself. Mm. Uh, And to some extent, it's an acceptance of that mystery, which is the holiness, to to be able to to have that kind of humility to abide in that that darkness and in that poverty. Uh, I I think I'm speaking true... truthfully about how Merton would see things. And that's the way I've come to see things myself. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Judith? How do you understand your own growth in holiness? Well, I I agree with Brother Paul that it it is a search for the true self. You know, when when Merton stood on the fourth in Walnut and had his epiphany, and and fourth and walnut in louisville and he said he saw that each person was shining like the sun and if only they can see themselves that way and i think there is that that spark in us that we that is the true self that spark in us is the true self and we're not going to find it if we're constantly chasing after that pulitzer prize or we're constantly chasing that first million dollars that we want to make we're not we're not really gonna that's going to distract an awful lot from finding the true self of finding that light inside of us or even so, after an ideal of holiness yeah yeah so i think what i'm hearing is in order to really get to know who we are in god we need to like break down our idols we need to be aware of what what our idols are and then destroy them, huh? Oh, that's excellent. Yes, absolutely. We don't tend to think in terms of idols, uh, at least not in the Catholic tradition so much, although it's primary in the in the Old Testament. And I think maybe the Baptists give more seriousness to the, the whole idea of, of idolatry, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, as, as a primary sin, but it is a primary sin to yeah. put something before God, even myself, especially myself. Mm -hmm. Going back to what you were saying before, Judith, sometimes what gets tricky is our ideal picture of what the church should look like (laughs) and how even that ideal and that dream can become an idol. So in your book, uh, How to Be, you describe your struggle with being part of the Catholic church. And you, and you say that you stay because of the Eucharist and it's the church of your ancestors. So this is, this is where you belong, but you really are honest and vulnerable about the things that kind of make that a challenge and a struggle for you. And then brother Paul, you respond in your letter back to Judith in the book. And you say that church often springs from saints and mystics, but also from the humble and the poor. 
Ooh, I love it. And that's so in line with Master Jesus business. So <laughs> thank you for that. And St. Francis. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. So you're speaking to a Franciscan's heart there. What I found fascinating is like in your response to Judith, you then talk about the priesthood and you reflect on the priesthood and what, what the true priesthood is, the dangers of clericalism and, and how priesthood might mean different things to different people. And in that section of the book, I heard this, this really important message come through in the text that we need to be patient in the struggle. We need to be patient in the struggle, uh, the struggle for change and recognizing that like things are changing, but maybe not in the way or in the, at the pace we want to. I'd love to hear your wisdom and, and what you have to tell the listeners about how to be patient during the struggle for change. I'm thinking of a talk that Sister Connie Fitzgerald, the Carmelite, gave at the monastery, in which she described the experience that women have of impasse is something, and maybe it's the, the contemporary form of the dark night of the soul. And so how do you get through the dark night of the soul? Well, Merton once said, you don't know if you're going to get through the dark night of the soul. That's part of the dark night. Mm. And, and it may be one of those things where, you know, I have no answers about uh, uh, what, the, what the future is going to yield. Uh, it may not correspond to what I wish, mm -hmm. or it may not correspond to what everybody at the time wishes. But uh, we have a habit, and I've, I've experienced this many times. Uh, every generation projects what will be the future. You know, we, we have to change in view of the future and the, what people are going to need and want in the future. Mm -hmm. When the future comes, they want an entirely different story. <laughs> I mean, they've got their own ideas about what to do with the future. Right. <laughs> so I've learned to be skeptical about our ideals, about where we ought to be go going and mm. what should happen. So are you saying that really you have to just trust God to have the big picture? That's as, about as good as you can do, really. Mm. What about you, Judith? How do, how do you stay patient? Well, yeah, you mentioned, um, you know, that I stay because of the Eucharist, which is true. And I stay because this is the church of my ancestors. You know, I'm a hundred percent Italian American. So everybody was Catholic and my family, but I also stay because there's good people in the Catholic Church. There's you, Sister Julia, there's Brother Paul. There's so many good people in the Catholic Church and smart people, spiritual people. And that's another reason that I stay. I mean, it's it's my home. And that's not to say I don't appreciate other, like Merton, that I don't appreciate other faith traditions. I've gotten very, very interested in, in meditation. For example, I've been studying with a Tibetan meditation teacher since the pandemic began on Zoom. And now I, I find myself rereading the works of Thich Nhat Hanh because he just passed in January. And, you know, I love the equanimity that I find in my Buddhist teachers and my Tibetan teacher. You know, I think we can, we can draw from other traditions and, and kind of make something of our own while still keeping the core of Catholicism, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is it drawing from those other traditions that helps you to stay patient in the, in the challenges? 
Yeah, I don't know that I always succeed at being patient. There's an interesting exchange in our book where Brother Paul talks about being a student, I think at uh, in the 70s, I think it was a Catholic theological union and talking to one of his professors there and they were ruminating about how women's ordination was right around the corner. Well, <laughs> that was, you know, 50 years ago now or 40 years ago now and it's still it still doesn't seem to be right around the corner, but you see this whole movement, this whole movement outside of the church for women's ordination. And, you know, someday that's going to seep into, it's going to come out from the margins and seep into the interior of the church. When, I don't know. I wish it would happen sooner than than now, uh, you know, sooner than it seems, but um God's time is not is not our time, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, there's that that surrender, knowing that God's got the timing under control. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So th- there's there's a lot more that we can explore, and and I'm wondering if you want to speak a little bit about why you wrote this book and and what you were hoping that your readers would would take away from it. Well, I'll just say that I I wanted to preserve the wisdom of Brother Paul. Uh, You know, we got to be very good friends over the years, and and I knew he had this wealth of wisdom to share. He he will not he will not describe it as such. He's much too humble. Very few people are like Brother Paul who have had sixty plus years in the contemplative life. They just don't exist anymore. People who entered a monastery at the age of 17, like he did. So I wanted to be able to preserve that. And we're both writers. And so we we began to write each other about, you know, began intentionally writing each other about topics and themes that meant a lot to us. For me, it was an opportunity to share something of my own ideas, my own experience. I've been given so much here, and uh, I I just want to give it back. You know, there's no comparison between what I've received and what I give back. I just give back, you know, about 5% of what what I've been able to receive over the years. But that 5%, it's healthy to be able to give back. And you gave me the opportunity to do that. Uh, I appreciate that very much. If I had sat down and tried to write a book about the monastic life, it would have been another another book about monastic life. I mean, there's dozens and dozens of those out there now. And you, you get the really good ones like Michael Casey and Thomas Merton. I, I don't have to replicate that. But uh, with uh, our conversations, it was an entirely different and fresh approach. And I I think that we've got something here that hasn't hasn't really quite appeared in monastic literature in, in our century, or even the past century. Yeah, and your book is very current. I mean, you wrote it during the pandemic, so at the start of it, and and so part of your letters are describing how the shutdowns in the different places you were were impacting you, impacting the monastery, impacting your family, mm-hmm. Judith, and so. So it is, in that sense, like a real time capsule, and you you really are offering something to the, the volumes of, of great monastic literature. Our hope was that people would see in the narrative of our letters, the narrative of their own lives, 
because mm-hmm. we, we were talking about practical things as well, you know, knowing when to leave a job, how to deal with disappointment, how to deal with sudden challenges, mm-hmm. how to deal with deaths, losses. Um, so we, we were hoping that it, it was personal and yet universal what we were writing about. Mm-hmm. What is radical discipleship for you? Well, radical discipleship is is to work for peace in, in a world that uh, appreciates war. It is to um, recognize in in those that we disagree with a, a friend, to see in them, you know, a hidden friend. And it is to realize that God is always going to be much bigger and more mysterious and more vast and wonderful than we can we can probably imagine. We can we cannot we cannot pigeonhole God. Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah. beautiful, and and I I certainly would have to agree with every bit of that. I, you know, I I always hate big questions. It makes me want to shrink and crawl under the the table when people ask <laughs> me kinds of big questions, <laughs> and, and so. And yet the fact of the matter is that the monastic life is a, is a radical uh, decision. It's a radical form of Christianity uh, to, to withdraw from the world uh, and its ambitions and pleasures and aspirations and to devote yourself entirely to a life of prayer mm-hmm. with the intention of petitioning the divine for the whole world. And it's it's a faith to, to be able to believe that in itself is kind of a radical thing because, uh, well, how can you prove it? Well, I can't prove it, except, you know, that uh, Christ says pray constantly and that the life that we live, in fact, is a kind of adding to sort of like the critical mass of spiritual consciousness and of uh, holiness, if you want to use that word. Uh, I would say the, the, the critical mass of being in the wholesomeness of creation as God has meant it to be for us. And there again, I can't prove, but uh, I wrote a book, a memoir called In Praise of the Useless Life. Yeah, that's a good book. Thank you for that memoir. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and that's radical. Mm-hmm. To be able to say, I live a useless life. Mm-hmm. Now you can say, oh, well, now you don't quite mean that. You know, you, you pray for the world and things like that. But in terms of the world, it is a useless life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's hidden. It's quiet. There's a lot of monks that never get any acknowledgement online. You're known to the people you're sharing your com- in your community that you're sharing life with, and you're known to God and your family and friends, and, and you yeah. somehow just give in to the mystery of it all, don't you? That's a good way of putting it, yes. Hmm. Huh, so we've really explored the messiness a, a bit together of the spiritual life. And what it means to really be a person that's searching for how to serve God or give back, as you say, Brother Paul. And I'm wondering what each of you, what else you have to add about the messiness of of living the gospel? You know, a big thing that I learned in the pandemic, you know, in the pandemic, we had to spend a lot of time alone with ourselves. You know, we had to confront 
ourselves in a lot in, in solitude a lot of the time and in silence a lot of the time. And something that kept coming back to me was that I needed I needed to forgive myself mm. for not for being less than perfect, for not always getting it right. And when I focused on that in myself, I was able to better forgive other people as well who maybe didn't get it right either. Mm-hmm. And so I think that would be, you know, one of the one of the big re- revelations that's come to me later in life and and as a result of the pandemic actually. So again that acceptance and just being being true to who you are and not trying to be something different, huh? That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what about for you brother Paul? What's messiness? What's messy about living the gospel? I I seem to be rather arbitrary about making my own messes. Uh, the messes, most of the messes I've had in my life are something I've caused. Uh, and I didn't always recognize until perhaps uh, 50 years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, that's the way it is. Part of the messiness is living in community mm. because people are, everybody's different. And everybody has a burden that, that you're not aware of, which explains why they behave the way they do sometimes. Why is, why is somebody negative, generally speaking, or makes criticisms, or has, um, you know, been unfair in, you know, their, their response to you about something. And all of that is unseen. You know, there's stuff that doesn't meet the eye. So you have to learn how to live with that. Sometimes I find myself misunderstood uh, th- that I'm I'm more angry than I actually am, or I'm I I'm impatient because I'm under pressure of trying to deal with somebody who, want, uh, who wants a, me to answer a question, and I'm I'm trying to get the food in the oven in time. I mean that sort of thing. <laughs> And then, I, and then I kind of get a, a sharp. I don't always realize how sensitive other people are. I always think I'm the only one who's sensitive. <laughs> so what have you learned? What, what, what do people need to know about how to, to live in community? Well, you have to be in community of some sort. And if, if you're willing to tolerate and be accepting, the community will grow. Because people, you know, if they if they see I'm okay with you, and I can get along with you, you're not going to explode on me. They'll draw around. You know, that's just kind of that's natural. It comes natural. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I live in community, and I find that one of the the wonders of it, one of the beauties, is exactly what you're describing of how. And, and, and I think this connects to what we're talking about with our relationship with God's and, and the unfolding of that and those in our vocation journeys, but our trust in community for one another deepens the more we experience compassion and acceptance for other people from other people where we offer that to them. So yeah. the, the, the more I can be forgiving and kind, the more people will 
feel relaxed and safe mm-hmm. and like they, their truth self can can be revealed and show up and be present and not this false self that they're trying to like meet some of my unrealistic expectations or vice versa right yeah, yeah. and that's me- that is messy work <laughs> human relationships and then the, all the ways are emotions and thoughts and oh man <laughs> ingrained habits and life patterns getting the get tangled up into it right yeah well, goodness, thank you so much to both of you for coming on Messy Jesus Business and exploring the mess of the spiritual life and community and relationship with the church and with God and each other with me today. Where can our listeners find your books? Both of you have put several creative works out in the world, and, and I'm wondering how they can find them and support you and follow and celebrate the ways that you contribute to, to the church. We always like to say support your local independent bookstore. Because mm-hmm. somebody has a bookstore of its own. And so mm-hmm. if you phone in or email in, uh, they, they, they can sell you my, my, uh, my books and the, the Judas book too. Well, thanks so much to both of you for coming on Messy Jesus Business. You're welcome. Thanks for all you do. Thanks, Sister Julia. you to join me in this contemplative moment. Whereas Judith and Brother Paul and I talk about what it means to be, and we ponder what holiness is, and how we are all called to be rooted in God and to surrender to God's mystery, I'm going to read for you Psalm 46. I invite you to breathe deeply and be rooted in your body as you listen and pray. See how your heart can claim these words and how you can pray them to your God in this moment. Psalm 46 God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in distress. Thus we do not fear, though earth be shaken, and mountains quake to the depths of the sea. Though its waters rage and foam and mountains totter at its surging. Streams of the river gladden the city of God, the holy dwelling of the Most High. God is in its midst. It shall not be shaken. God will help it at break of day. Though nations rage and kingdoms totter, he utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. Our stronghold is the God of Jacob. Come and see the works of the Lord, who has done fearsome deeds on earth, who stops wars to the ends of the earth, breaks the bow, splinters the spear, and burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. Our stronghold is the God of Jacob. That's it for this episode of Messy Jesus Business. Thanks for listening. 
Messy Jesus Business is produced and hosted by me, Sister Julia Walsh, and edited by Cherish Bedzinski. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.